This is an interview with Mark Davis of the Tidewater Unix User Group, which I recorded a couple of months ago because of various uh, occurrences in my private life. I was unable to get it edited until now. Unfortunately, in this, the first interview that I attempted to do, I found out that I really need a new microphone for doing interviews. I have tried to salvage my end of the sound as best I can. Fortunately, Mark's end of the sound came out very well, so I urge you to overlook my inadequacies and listen to him tell his story of over 25 years of involvement with Unix and Linux. Thank you. Hello, this is Frank Bell again. I'm here with Mark Davis. Mark is the head, the unofficial head, as there are no elected officers, the unofficial head of the Tidewater Unix User Group, also known as TWUG. The group functions very much as a community, but Mark is very much our leading spirit. A little bit of intro, when I moved to this part of the world a couple of years ago, I moved from an area where I did not have uh, a lug that was at all convenient for me to attend. The nearest one was well over an hour and a half away in the evening traffic. So I was overjoyed when I got here and found there was an active users group and even better, it's 15 minutes away from my house. So I thought it might be interesting to hear a little bit of Mark's story. So Mark, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Well, right now I'm the Director of Information Systems and Communications at Lake Taylor Transitional Care Hospital in Norfolk. And uh, we do use our current facility as the to host TWUG. Um, and like you said, I kind of I think of myself as kind of a benevolent dictator when it comes to TWUG. I, I don't like to use that word, but um, you're right that we don't have any elected officers and nobody seems interested in using Robert's rules or making it more complicated than it needs to be. So we pretty much just uh, act as an informal group. Okay, and of course I can see since you're the person with the meeting room, that would give you uh, a kind of a leg in to being the leader of the group. Uh, what, just for curiosity, what is a transitional hospital? Well, Lake Taylor um, has a long history, about 120-something years, and it used to be a part of the city um, where people would go for indigent care. And its role has changed dramatically over the past 120 years. Um, right now, you can think of us as a long-term or rehab-type hospital and also a nursing home combined. So our role is a little unique when it comes to health care, uh, which is interesting because uh, we do use Linux and we use Unix and have pretty much since uh, we started using computers. So uh, an unusual facility using an unusual... <laughs> You know, at least as far as the, the business community goes, an unusual operating system. Well, I think that leads into why did, the, why did you and the hospital make the choice to use a Linux-based network? Well, um, as you probably know, way back when, before there was an MS Windows or, or um, several other operating systems, Unix was probably the premier operating system, or was the premier operating system for use in all business type systems and uh, when I came to Lake Taylor in 1989 
they had already purchased a system from what's called a VAR, or a value-added reseller. Um, their name was Monette Information Systems. They're based in Smithfield. And, you know, back then, it was, uh, computers were very expensive, and uh, we had just passed the mini-computer phase and into the micro-computer phase, but uh, multi-user was a very cost-effective way of running a system. So we had a single Altos system, a 986T, for anyone that's listening that remembers the Altos systems. And the Altos 986T ran Xenix, and it was a multi-user system. And at the same time I was hired, which was early in 89, they had just upgraded the platform to an Altos, I think it was an Altos 2000, can't remember exactly, but Altos was a big name in in multi-user Unix computers, and uh, the different areas of the building, there were probably about 10 terminals, and they were literally terminals, Altos terminals, but they were more VT100-wise, you know, type terminals, where um, people would log into it and use the accounting software, which was the primary purpose for it being there. When I got there, that's pretty much all it was used for, was was uh, accounting and payroll. And we quickly expanded and added more machines. I mean, the, just to, <laughs> to let you know how terrifying it is to depend on a VAR, they didn't have a, you know, being a small company, they didn't have an IT department, um, or MIS is what it used to be called, Management Information Systems. And so they started small. They hired me. I was three-quarter time part-time or three-quarter time. I was still going to ODU, um, earning my degree in computers, and um, so it was an excellent opportunity for me and for them so they could uh, get slave labor for a while, as you know. <laughs> that is with your first job. And you've been there ever since? I have. I, I've actually worked in, in several other places, too, but that was my first, I would say, real job, although the previous, prior to that, I was um, in a small computer store named Bits and PCs, which probably nobody's heard of, but building computers and, and helping people and uh, before that I worked at Radio Shack and that was my dream job from being a child of course what you think of as a child and, and going into adulthood are to- totally different things when you realize it's definitely not the dream job um, but I do like to, to interrupt myself I do that all the time uh, what was I talking about was uh, Radio Shack uh, no 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 before that we were talking about the, the hospital oh when I got there they didn't have anybody to help them so they depended on this VAR, you know, which was off-site support. And the way the system was originally set up, it was multi-user, but they didn't even have usernames. They were logging in as programs, like they would log in as AP, or they would log in as um, AR for accounts receivable or things like that. And so the system had no idea their user identities or anything, because that was the way the VAR set it up. So I was... You know, going into that environment, I was terrified. I was like, I cannot believe they have this set up this way. So the very first thing I did was assign login names to everybody, teach people how to have a real password, and then I set up email, and then we set up word processing and all this on the, the Altos 2000 system. So you were in, in, in it from the beginning there at the hospital? Def- well, I'm not that old. I'm not, not from the beginning of the facility, but definitely from the beginning of computer usage. Yeah, And, and as you probably guessed, um, we followed an upgrade path that led to another Altos system, an Altos 15000, and that upgraded to Altos Unix instead of Xenix. And then after that, we upgraded to a... It was an, oh, actually, that was SCO, SCO Open Server, or, or SCO ODT. Now, Our friend SCO, yes. <laughs> now, remember, back then, SCO was not a dirty word. They were just another Unix distribution. Um, that was what you're thinking of nowadays, you know, is the SCO group. 
which is what became what was left of SCO after Linux pretty much took over SCO's marketplace. But you know, it was a, it was a capable operating system, and you know, people would make fun of it, especially Solaris people. You know, oh, toy the toy Unix. Um, but we would use that until we had upgraded to an HP 15,000. And I think that was also running SCO ODT. Then we upgraded to... What did we use after that? Oh, from that point, we moved into Linux. So, um, which is what a lot of businesses did. In fact, at the time, Linux had backwards compatibility with SCO OpenServer. Um, because it could run Xenix binaries and also I386 cough binaries. I don't know if anyone remembers those. but no, I've never heard of them. I, I could actually run some of the programs that directly without recompiling them. Um, so that that or getting a different version from the vendor, so that worked out really well, and we've been Linux ever since. So I'm not you're not going to find very many businesses that that have always used Unix Linux. Uh, we're probably one of the very few that we just never left. You know, a lot of companies were romanced by the the whole PC type architecture, and um, not that we haven't had a few in the building, you know, for specific purposes, but and um, Windows NT. Well, fortunately, we never we never really tried to get into that. But yeah, their first Microsoft's first foray into multi-user was was not very romantic and not very pretty. Um, reminds me of some of the Citrix type stuff that was later came built on NT, and it was just not very good. Um, it's of course improved dramatically since then. But my point was that we just never. It's not that we defected and left any other platform. We just, unless you want to think of going from Unix to Linux as a different platform. It's just been an organic development from Unix to Linux rather than leaving home and then coming back the prodigal child chastened and hungry. That's right. And of course, you know, we have, it's always fun to have auditors come in, you know, or, or something, and they're, they're looking at our systems trying to figure out what they are and, and being completely baffled, you know. So. Yeah, we always get surveys. You know, well, what which email server do you use? And I was like, well, we, we don't. It's just, you know, Postfix. It's just part of part of Linux. Well, where's your print server? It's like we don't have a print server or an email server or a login server or a web server. As they're all that box right there. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, the whole hospital runs on this one box. And this is way before you know, IBM came along and with their virtualization, you know, their big thing on Linux, and um, they had this fun ad where they had this big room and said oh the servers are gone the servers are gone I don't know if did you ever see that one and the police came in and and I can't say I remember it but I am very good at tuning out ads of all sorts <laughs> I am too especially with TiVo another Linux <laughs> powered device but, um, but the whole room was empty and there was nothing but this one little computer in the corner and, and they were saying oh it's all running on that now mm-hmm yeah, so that was when, I, yes, believe it or not, IBM was was heavy into pushing Linux at at one time on their virtualized machines. So, but um, philosophically, I think of everything. It's more than just the fact that we run Linux. It's also a centralized system, which is another unusual. Didn't used to be unusual, you know, when I came up with computers. The idea of sharing a computer among many different people was was logical. I remember when I was at my first job out of college. Uh, it was a, a fairly large organization, and among other things, they had an economist, some economists on staff to do projections and the like. I got to be friendly with one of them, and I remember him taking his phone handset 
and putting it in the old cradle, I forget what they're called. It's an acoustic modem coupler, yeah. And dialing up the timeshare on some mainframe that was located God knows where, somewhere elsewhere in the city. Yeah, that was that was very common back then. And uh, what I think is interesting is that the philosophically, it, centralized versus distributed computing has always been there. And a pendulum swings between being distributed and being and being centralized. It moves back and forth. Uh, they both have wonderful advantages and disadvantages. And of course, there are hybrids because no system is purely you know, centralized or purely distributed. If you look at your computer or your laptop that you're using right now, you might think, well, this is a very you know, distributed type system. It's, it's your own computer. But nowadays, you know, a computer not connected to a network and sharing with the, the internet and the rest of the world seems kind of ludicrous. But that's, again, if you use any kind of web-based mail, that's a very centralized concept. If you have uh, anything in the cloud, you know, like email, I mean, not email, uh, files or music or anything like that. That's that's all centralized. If you use Amazon to, to order things, um, that's even the concept of a website. It's very centralized. You're going back to a single server or a set of servers that look like a single server. Um, so at Lake Taylor, we're a, just, we are a centralized system where we use essentially X terminals because um, we, had, we had evolved from ASCII terminals or text-based terminals to... Um, X terminals back when uh, Tektronics, I don't know if you remember them, but they made X terminals. The whole concept of X11, the X windowing environment, is is network transparent and network based and was essentially designed for the idea of sharing expensive mainframe type computers with graphical desktops. It was just a, a an evolution of going from text based to graphical based and X is very elegant for that and people forget nowadays, especially with all this Wayland thing. Don't get me started on that. You know how I feel about Wayland. Um, I mean, I think the network transparency and the network functions within the windowing environment, it's very important for reasons that a lot of people don't understand the history of. And of course, we use that right now actively. And it's as simple as set up an X server and, and just point it at the, the display manager, the XDM manager, which is my centralized computer. And bam, you get a login screen, you log in all the programs run on the server, well, server and client, are a little confused in X. You know, when you say X server, it's actually running on your machine close to you. Um. <laughs> so, so Mark, how do you feel about Wayland? Oh, well, you're going to pull me into that, huh? That's In one minute or less, can you tell us what you think about Wayland? I'm not opposed to the idea, of course, of moving forward. Things change, and I'm, like a lot of people on TWUG, I'm somewhat conservative, especially because I've been around computers so long. Um, people come along and just say, well, there are problems with X11. It doesn't do this or it doesn't do that. or um, So let's just throw it out and design something brand new. And oh, by the way, it'll be backwards compatible so you can run your X-based programs under Wayland. It's like, well, it's not that simple because the moment that something else starts taking over like Wayland, um, popular programs such as Firefox or whatnot may not be available as an X-based version anymore. And those people that choose to use X because they're using a centralized system or they like their network transparency and they can launch programs remotely and very efficiently through SSH or however they want to manage their systems, will be denied access to that program because you know, either that or you'll have different versions. You'll have a Wayland version and you'll have an X version. It's kind of the way the approach that Apple used. You know, they didn't, as you know, they're, they're a Unix-based kernel, but they didn't use X11 as their windowing environment. They, they was based on Next and 
display PostScript at the time, and it created incompatibilities. Now, yes, they have an X server, so you can run X programs, but all the Mac programs are going to be essentially designed for Mac, right, just to use on Mac. So it's it's good for them, but it's not good for anyone else. It makes it difficult. So as a developer, if you were to develop a program that was uh, written in C and used some standard libraries, it might be easy to port that to from to or from Mac OS to Linux or another Unix, um, except for the fact that the windowing environment is completely different. See, I, I don't have didn't have the background to look at it in that level of detail. My feeling about Wayland is pretty much uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And as near as I can tell, X ain't broke. But I, I think you uh, provide some information and perspective here that a lot of people will find interesting and useful. Well, again, it's a matter of, of just going back in history. You know, X has been around a long, 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 long time. Um, initially designed, I think, by Xerox, and that may be... I think it's at 40 years old or more. It's, well, it's as old, it's almost as old as Unix, but not quite that old, you know. Unix is back in 1968, 1967, 8, 9, depending on your definition of when, when, when Unix was created, because you could, it, it was evolving, and you could point at any, anything in between that early timeline and say, well, that's where Unix really began, but the idea of having a graphical console, you know, came several years later, and X was developed. Now, when I first started using X, it wasn't X11, it was X10. Not to be confused with those annoying uh, home controller people that pop up on your screen, but I don't remember all of my history. My memory's not as good as it used to be, but I don't remember there being an X9 or X8. You know, I don't know why, if it just jumped to that, or whether... uh, I'll just show my ignorance there. I just can't remember. But just to let you know, I mean, I've been using X for way over 20 years uh, I think since yeah, probably before that and it's always been was X10 at the time until it became X11 and then even then you have like X11 release 3 release 4 release 5 release 6 what are we up to now release 7 I think or X11 <laughs> X11 R6 I, it was for the longest time it was X11 R6 and of course you remember the whole Xorg versus X386 debacle um, I actually started using Linux uh, just about the time that changeover was t- around 2005, and I think that changeover was kind of coming to a completion about that point. So I don't have the experience with the previous uh, iterations. Oh, that's a wonderful story about how uh, about how open source works. To to watch what happened with Xorg versus Xfree86, because Xfree86 was the X server implementation that was used by not just Linux, but BSD, you know, all the free Unixes. And it, it wasn't being developed fast enough. It wasn't being pushed. And so it was forked. And that's how X, Xorg was created. And um, pretty much Xorg just took over. And it's very similar to the kind of forking that you see with like OpenOffice and forking into LibreOffice. So again, the, that's what makes Linux and open source very powerful is the ability to, to keep things open and to have forks, but it's also the, its downfall, you know, when it comes to compatibility and lack of centralized control can sometimes hurt, you know, having a vision and moving in a certain direction. So it's, it's that pendulum. I love going back to the pendulum analogy that everything is, is um, that's a good tie back, isn't it, to come back to that. Everything in life philosophically swings from one direction to another as people discover and rediscover the past and, and look forward to the future. And just to put that back into the frame of Lake Taylor, we use X because it, it works for us. And it's not always the easy path, as you can imagine, trying to get 
Linux-based accounting software and other things sometimes can be very difficult. But it's also very cost-effective. I have heard that that's one area in open source where open source tends to be weak because the classic saying is that where does an open source program come from? It comes from a developer who's scratching his own itch. And a lot of geeks don't have an itch to develop accounting software or a CAD software. Right. And there, and it's not to say that there aren't accounting-based packages. There, there are, but there are so many individualized markets out there in healthcare. You know, if you can imagine building an accounts receivable, it's very complicated. And and every time insurance companies change a policy or procedure, it's going to cascade down into the billing and the accounts receivable. Yes, and so there, there, it's hard to keep up with it. And it's not that our industry is any more complicated than any other industry. Each industry has their own very specific requirements when it comes to different types of software. And when you look at the market now, you know, where the market used to be 90% Unix, and um, now it's, it's easily 90% Windows-based. So you as a developer trying to make software to make money to survive in a business environment, you're going to target those markets that are going to make you the most money, and that is not Linux. And so Sometimes that hurts us. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes uh, it's the most cost-effective method, and sometimes it isn't. Uh, we're not purely Linux-based at Leto. We do have a Windows 2008 server running Citrix, and it, but it's still centralized. So there are a few applications that we use on that that we couldn't simply could not get for Linux. But our preferred choice would be would be Linux-based, and then preferred over that would be open source over commercial. But again, that's a, another complicated argument that we could get into but I, I don't think people want to hear that you know as to you know whether commercial or open source they both have their advantages and disadvantages well, I, I think uh, if any audience is interested in hearing arguments like that it would be the audience for hacker public radio I'll, I'll follow you li- your lead and we won't, won't go there uh, going back to your background were you using Linux uh, well obviously not Linux because it hadn't it wasn't around when when you got into working for Lake Taylor, but were you using Unix or before you started working with Lake Taylor? Or well, if we rewind all the way back to, I'm from Richmond. I'm not from Hampton Roads originally, and uh, my first real computer was the uh, Tandy or TRS-80 color computer one. The old trash 80. Don't call it trash 80. I hate it when people did that. Especially people using crapadors, remember? That? <laughs> That's what they call Commodore. Um, well, yeah, my first computer was a Coco one. It had 4K of RAM, uh, cassette player, you know, to uh, record your your programs and play them back uh, or store them because it didn't have a floppy drive. Those were way too expensive back then. Um, I had several other little intermediate computers. You know, I'd messed with a Timex Sinclair. I played with a lot of other things that Candy uh, Model 1, a um, friend of mine, they had a Model 2 and a Model 3, was like, woo. And the Model 3 came out, that's about the same time, I think it was the 2 or the 3, is when the Coco 1 came out. And it was a great beginning. I was only 11 years old, so. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's amazing how far we've come in just one person's lifetime. And of course, I'm not saying that I'm going to die anytime soon. I hope not. But, but you look back at you know a flash key that can store hundreds of gigabytes in this little teeny chip that you can fit on the on one of your fingernails. That would just have blown me away back then when we were struggling with 4K of RAM trying to trying to fit things in. And then when the 16K 
version came out, it's like, oh my god, we'll never need 16K of RAM. I mean, can you imagine that much storage space, or that much working area for your programs? It's unbelievable. And, and when I was 11 years old, color television was new. <laughs> Not that anyone that's listening wants to, to date how old we are, but I guess it's, it'll probably be apparent, you know, by since I wrote down some of these uh, dates as to how we progressed. Um, now, you're currently using Red Hat, I think, for your network at Lake Taylor? Oh, yeah, we're using RHEL. We recently converted. So so what is your personal favorite distro for your home use? Oh, Lord. I, I see you wanted to jump off the history and go straight into the meat. Um, as you know, politically, as in twug i'm try to be as distro neutral as possible because and, and by and large you succeed yeah i'm I, I believe that all distros all linux distros have their advantages and disadvantages and there's a distro for everybody sometimes there's more than one distro for everyone um currently i i lean and it depends on the the purpose for example at work we use um rhel and centos and scientific linux primarily um, on the servers, on the desktops, which are mostly being used as thin clients anyway. We're converting to Fedora right now, but we've used several other operating systems there. Um, at home, well, actually, let me just, I'll just rewind the history because that'll work me right up to it. The Cocoa 1, it, well, I ended up getting a Cocoa 2 and then the Cocoa 3. When the Cocoa 3 hit, they were using an operating system that became available then if you had a a hard drive, which was amazing, you know, to have a hard drive, God. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, we were using something called OS 9, and OS 9 was fantastic. And what's interesting about OS 9 is a lot of the concepts in OS 9 came from Unix. So it was, in a weird sort of way, very Unixy. And so that set me up for the stage of being more and more fascinated with that. In 1987, I graduated from high school, moved to Norfolk to attend ODU, and I was on the never-ending plan, you know, it took me like seven years to, to get out of there. ODU uh, being... Old Dominion University, yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they had Unix machines, a lot of Solaris stuff that well, was SunOS at the time, they didn't have Solaris, you know, that would, that didn't come out until later. Um, but uh, the first Linux distro I used, let's see, I started Lake Taylor in 89, and then, you know, was forced, I would say, shouldn't say forced, but it was required to use, use Xenix because that's what we had. And, of course, like a lot of people at the time, I wanted to be able to use it at home also. And I'd already built an x86 machine, but there were, you know, back then, there, there were no free or open or easy-to-obtain versions of Unix or Xenix. They were all commercial and tremendously expensive. Now, if you were a school, you could get either free or very reduced prices, but for home, there just wasn't an option. So... There was a lot of talk about Minix and other things that, that would be available, but nothing really really happened until Linux hit the scene. Now, I was able, somehow, it was at a... I got some kind of clearance version of interactive Unix. So that was my very first Unix that I had at home. Um, and it, it worked quite well. They didn't include X. So I, I remember... <laughs> oh, my God. This was funny. I remember having to download X from... Uh, from school because you know they're the only ones that had an internet connection at the time that were universities and I downloaded it and put it on a tape and got it home and I had to borrow a tape drive to to actually download it because I think it was something ridiculous like I don't know it was 10 or 15 megabytes which at the time was just oh my god you know huge <laughs> exactly so but I got it working and that really got me very interested and around the same time you know Linux was coming out 
and it wasn't quite stable yet, but as soon as it became good enough to use, I think it was Soft Landing Systems or SLS, um, and I remember downloading just reams of floppies. It just took forever on these BBSs and stuff to try and get these floppies. Um, later came UUCP, you know, so trying to use Unix to Unix copy to get these things off of what was the precursor of the internet, um, or was what the precursor of to what we think of as the internet now. Precursor to the World Wide Web. Yeah, essentially, and oh, just floppy after floppy after floppy after floppy for soft landing systems, and that was a little restrictive. And then Slackware came out, of course, and then I moved to Slackware, and then. I moved to Red Hat and was really impressed. Red Hat put a lot of effort into polishing it and getting it uh, to be a very useful and easy to install distro. <laughs> That's all relative, you know, easy. We look at it now, it's like, oh God, it's been many, 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 many hours trying to get X to work or something. And uh, nowadays you just slap it in, it seems like most things work. Um, now I left, I was increasingly frustrated with Red Hat. Mandrake came out at the time and was based on Red Hat, and they made a wonderful distro. I switched to Mandrake and started using that. And as you know, they their name changed through time and then to Mandriva, and that's what they are now is Mandriva. But um, I still use what's now Magia, which is the the fork, which is the open fork of of Mandriva. So I'm using Magia on my desktop right now, and I, I like it. It's it's nice. Um, but I've used many other distros too, depending on what purpose. For example, on this EEE computer that I have here, I'm, we're actually using an EEE to record my voice now. Um, I was especially impressed with the Asus EEE PC, I think this is 1000. When it came out, it was the first true netbook. You know, They invented the netbook category, and it came with Linux, and it came with... Uh, was that the one with that Linux light? Oh, yeah, it had some awful... I don't know what it was. I immediately <laughs> took it off and installed um, something else, but... I don't. I really don't remember which Linux came on it. It was definitely not for me. I think it came with a crippled version of Fedora that was called Linux Lite. I think it was Linspire or something. Linspire? I don't know. It's there've been several attempts. Yeah. I I didn't get a netbook until I was able to get one from Dell, and it came with Ubuntu. Right. Um, and now it's trying to get a netbook with. Linux on it from Dell is like trying to pull a tooth. Yeah, I know. But uh, I, I quite like... I'm running Sales OS on that one now, and I'm very happy with it as a uh, netbook. Mm-hmm. Well, you can use it for other things, too, but it works like a charm on my netbook, and it got the... Uh, the broad, I was able to get the Broadcom wireless working very easily with instructions on the Sales website, and it... Well, it's based on Slackware, so of course it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I would, uh, I didn't tolerate the the desktop that was installed very quickly because they they wanted to dumb down for your your user that didn't understand what Linux was or didn't care. You know, they just wanted a cheap computer that worked. Um, so yeah, I dumped that and installed. I think it was EEE Ubuntu at the time, and that worked very well. Um, and I used that for a few years and was upgrading that through different versions and. I think I went to just a plain Ubuntu after that on it, and then I switched it over to Fedora, um, and surprisingly that worked well too. So, because by that this time, I mean we all know this from Linux, is especially with laptops and new hardware, it's it can be a nightmare when you buy a new machine with new chipsets and things because, you know, they haven't made it into the kernel, and you, 
So the early days of, of any laptop is, is difficult, but after a few years, all the distros had support for it, so you could install anything you want. I remember having to use Indus wrapper to get a wireless PCM CIA card working. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it worked. Then I had the, then I upgraded the computer to a newer version of Slackware, and the Indus wrapper didn't work anymore, but it can be flaky. But yeah, for a long time, wireless was the Achilles heel of Linux, putting Linux on a laptop. Yes, in fact, that was the big thing because if you couldn't get on the network, there was pretty no, much no point in using the machine, and nobody wanted to be tethered by a, a an Ethernet cable. It's nice to have, but it's not what you want to primarily use in a portable machine. Yeah, exactly. It's not. It takes away the portability. So, did I answer your question? I think I did. We covered the ground. Yes. Uh, going back to Twug, the Tidewater Unix user group. What are some of the services that, that Twug provides to its members? Well, that's varied over time, but... Other than an ability to go into a room and when you talk about computers, you're talking with people who actually know what Etsy slash FSTAB means. <laughs> yes. Well, it is, it is refreshing if, you haven't, if you've never been to a Unix or Linux users group before, um, especially if, if Linux interests you, you know, to be around other people that kind of know what, know what you're going with that. Um, I'll probably rewind and, and give you a little history on Twug so that you can see how it's evolved. I'm really okay. curious about because I know it's been around a long time. Well, I posted, you know, this stuff is on our website, but you know, I'll sometimes sometimes nobody wants to read that. They want to, they just want to listen. You know, that way you can listen to this in the car or whatever. But um, I did not form Twug. I was there within the first year of its formation. Um, I, you know, when I started working at Lake Taylor. Uh, oh well, just to rewind, back in Richmond, I was very active in a users group that uh, that helped to form called RACO, which was the Richmond Richmond Area Color Computer Organization. And you know, having left there, moved here, and also you know getting into the whole Unix thing, I was looking for a users group. I think I found. I'm not sure we were called Twug at the time. I think it just kind of stuck. Um, I can't remember exactly when that phrase was coined. Well, it's easy to pronounce and it's easy to remember, so that gives you a leg up. It does confuse some people nowadays, you know, when they say, you know, well, I don't want Unix, I want Linux. Well, you know, obviously, you know, Linux is, <laughs> Linux and Unix go hand in hand, but um, we didn't want to rename the group. And besides, you can't pronounce something that would be like the Tideboarder Linux users group. It would be Twalug, you know, it would be kind of weird. Or, or t well, it could be Tlug, and there's some other history involved in that, but... Um, so I did discover them, I think, it, through probably through ODU. I think there was somebody there that knew somebody that knew someone that put up a flyer that knew somebody else, and um, that this new users group was just forming called TWUG, and it was meeting at several different locations. I, I would give... Um, when was that? Uh, 1989. I would credit probably Tom Manos as being driving force behind the creation of the group. Um, and like most developers, you know, if you have, a, if you have a, an itch... You know, you try you try to make a, a scratch to go with it, and I think he probably had need for, at the time, you know, having more support for Unix and getting together with other people in the community to try and share knowledge and learn. And um, because uh, Tom Manos was forming a company called Wyvern Technologies, which I'm not sure if you remember that, but um, Bill Roberts was also instrumental. He just died recently, unfortunately. Oh, I remember something on the uh, website about that. Right, and he, he was instrumental in the early days also. Um, but we, we would meet, there's a very small group, you know, you might have five or six people, and it started growing. Um, 
Oh, I remember. One of the, the key things that happened with Twug at the time was to try and get on what was the Internet or what would be the Internet. And the way the only way you could do that, like I said earlier, was through universities. And this was all happening at the same time I was going to ODU, which was interesting. Now they they had a real connection, you know, through, I guess, what, I'm not sure if it was still called DARPANET at that point, but for anyone else on the fringe trying to get access, you would go through your local university using UUCP, which was the Unix to Unix copy. It's primarily for email. So Wyvern Technologies, which was the company that was forming to almost be like an internet service provider, um, Tom Manos bought a high-speed modem for ODU, and ODU provided a UCP live connection back to their server. So that became kind of the price of admission was you buy them a modem and and they would be happy. You had to buy two, you know, one for yourself and one for them, and they would give you a connection because, you know, the universities were interested in uh, trying to spread this and getting out into the community. And this was before the days, really, of Internet service providers, and that's what Tom was forming, which later became Infinet, as you probably know, Infinet, which was a major, you know, local Internet service provider in Hampton Roads with lots and lots of modems. <laughs> modems were the way that people connected back then. And anyway, um, we would call that the Wyvern era of our of our group, you know, because we met at Wyvern and then late, later physically met at um, Infinet was their building. And the group grew and we had more and more people. Um, we also had Lyman Bird, who's another historic figure of TWUG. Um, and later Ken Long also joined, and they both worked for Metro Machines, and they're a local uh, company that uses Linux, and they hosted our first TWUG website and what was going to be the mail list. So I believe our original mail list was getting back to the internet through UUCP, and it was crazy because you had to use all these, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but back before there was like mark at you know, so-and-so dot so-and-so dot org as an email address, you'd have to use bangs. So you'd say, like, wyvern.chrysanthemum.odu.cs.edu, bang, wyvern, bang, twug, bang, something, bang. And that's how you'd have to actually route this mail from one place to another. It was was complicated. I don't remember that at all. I was probably uh, just starting to cut my teeth (laughs) with, with BBSs. Yes, now BBSs were still popular. Yes, this was going on all, you know, BBSs have been around a long, long time. Um, but yeah, that was primarily the way that people were communicating was through bulletin boards. The idea of having live push, as you would think of it now, or push email, where email just comes on its own to your machine was was a, a fascinating concept that, that bulletin boards couldn't quite do. And uh, Anyway, they hosted that for, for years, and later we had uh, Lockheed Martin join in with um, Jerry Massey. That's another name that's kind of, you know, key name at TWUG. And so we would rotate the group meetings between Lockheed Martin and Chesapeake and Infinet in Norfolk. So one month we'd have it at one, next month we'd have it at the other. And then later, uh, you know, there, sometimes you'd have conflicts and couldn't get the meeting rooms yeah. and stuff. So that's how I got involved is, is, you know, we needed a meeting place. And so I said, well, you know, you could meet at Lake Taylor. I don't have a problem with that. So I offered a meeting room there. And so then we'd have a three-way rotation. And then, or it could have been like at the time Infinet was not available or, or Tom was not available to, to be with the group for a while and I think you know without somebody hosting it that's from that organization it makes it more difficult because you know a lot of lugs meet at 
libraries and other public places, but a lot of those public places weren't suitable back then because they didn't have an internet connection or they don't have a projector or they don't have a lecture-style meeting room, you know, or they have dues, you know, have to pay pay to use the room, you know, that kind of thing. Um, or they have very restrictive times or dates that are available for when you could have the meetings. You, you, ha you have to leave when the yes, library yeah, closes exactly. and things like that. And, you know, our target audience are, are people that that mostly are working. So, you know, unless you're going to have the meeting on a weekend, you want to have it probably on a weeknight. And that means that it'll be after work, after dinner, you know. So you have to be available a little bit longer. Um, so, you know, it rotated between Lockheed Martin and Lake Taylor. And then eventually Lockheed Martin dropped out of the picture because of we had a lot of security problems. You know, this is, if you look back at the years at, at you know, and the whole terrorism thing, and so it got harder and harder to get to get into to Lockheed Martin, and so it was just decided. A little, you know, I had no trouble with them just meeting at Lake Taylor permanently, and so that's what's happened. So for many years now, it's been just at Lake Taylor. Uh, one thing I noticed about Twelve, because I'm primarily a Slackware user, which I think makes me part of a minority. A lot of folks seem to be frightened of Slackware. But I noticed there's a high percentage of Slackware users in TWAG. Why do you think that might be? <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I mean, of course, a lot of them seem to me to be old Unix heads. Exactly, and I think that again we have a, a, a large, what I would say, conservative group of people that have been around a long time and, and have been using different distros. And people that are more conservative tend to not like things like Ubuntu. They'll probably gravitate more towards the older distros like Slackware or Red Hat, even Mandriva at this point would I guess would be considered an old distro. Debian's what I use on my file server at home. Yeah, Debian's been around a long time. And uh it's we have at Twug we have you know, every possible kind of person you can imagine and there there, there is no one our audience. You know, we have people that that work, people that don't, people that go to school, people that are young, old, um, of every nationality, race, religion age, gender, yeah. Hardware hackers, yeah. software hackers. Yeah, and it's just, it's impossible. Kernel hackers. Yeah, and I'll tell you, that's one of the more difficult things about TWUG. Yeah, we have had people you know, that are programmers and people that do this for a living, people that just do it as a hobby, people that are beginners, people that are experts. It's difficult to have one group that meets the needs or expectations of everyone. And, well, it's just impossible. Um, yeah, it's, it's impossible to even try, and I think someone who's interested in a group like TWUG or any other hobbyist or interest groups learns they either have to be willing to accommodate aspects of that interest they're not particularly interested in for the larger sense of being part of the community. Right. It's diff it can be very difficult to find topics that are interesting. Plus, I'm kind of burned out because I've been doing this for so many years, since 1989, a lot of times people won't step forward to give presentations. I know you've given several presentations, and I appreciate that. Um, and we always are looking for more people to present uh, on all different kinds of levels or topics. But a lot of times it comes down to me having to give a presentation at every single meeting, and there's just only so many things I can talk about. <laughs> but I know some of the most interesting meetings, from my standpoint, have been the ones where there was no topic. Yes. And... People started talking about, you know, what, just what was bothering them at the moment, whether it was a problem on their computer, and 
sometimes those are the, the meetings with the highest amount of laughter and fun. Uh, that's true, especially at my expense, you know, that people love to, to tease me. But um, Don't be too hard on yourself. No. We'll do that for you. No, I've done that several times, and nervously at first, you know, where we just didn't have a topic, because a lot of members were, well, I don't want to drive out there and, and be there if, if you're not going to have a, a, a prearranged you know, schedule of who's going to talk about what and why, and <clears throat> I can certainly appreciate that, but at the same time, some of these open meetings have been, I think, one of the mo- some of the most enjoyable ones because you'll get people talking that don't normally talk, and I don't want each meeting to be just one way where a speaker is presenting and and people are listening, and then maybe there's a question and answer session if you're lucky, and then that's it, and you go home. Uh, a few meetings have been that way only because of time constraints or you know, what's covered, but the interactivity of bringing people in and who has a question or what's what's a topic we can talk about and it can be off the wall because um again the tidewater unix users group our mission is not just linux or unix it's also free and open source software and there's so many devices that use linux now and open source software um i mean android is the, the world's number one platform for mobile experience devices now and that's that's linux based so we don't want to drag it down into being an Android users group, but having that in the mix is interesting. Um, people talk about Google or what they're doing and knowing that they have hundreds of thousands of servers that are all Linux-based. Um, so there, there's a lot of different topics. So what are some, you mentioned the website. What are some of the other services to our products? Well, we've had a website for a long time, and we tried, you know, it is a wiki, and that didn't work out so well when it came to contributions. We did have some people contribute to it, like Matthew Philpot. I don't, don't want to say that there weren't people that put a lot of effort into it. But we had some problems with spamming, and it just didn't work out quite so well. Um, of course, we've always had the mail list, which has been the most important thing. Recently, we just added a, a discussion forum, um, which is based on PHPBB, and that was could have been a little controversial, but I think it's it's been going quite well. It's just still in its infancy right now. We have 26 people that have signed up for it. I'm always asked, well, how many members are there in TWUG? And it's hard to say. You know, a lot of organizations have dues, or and we don't have dues. That's one of the things I've never wanted to do is to have any kind of charge. We've made money that we needed to in the past by selling discs or by doing little fundraiser things if we needed to, but we've never really needed money because, you know. Well, for one thing, you don't have to pay for a meeting room. Right. And for a lot of organizations, like TWUG, the meeting room, and paying for meetings is, is the biggest expense. Either that or hosting. Hosting services can be expensive too, but those have been donated also. Uh, Metro's Machine has been doing that, like I said, for many years at no cost. I've now since moved that over to Lake Taylor, so the servers are now there, and Lake Taylor is providing the bandwidth and the server, so... Um, which is good. It's good for Lake Taylor. It's good for the community. It's good for Twug. It's good for all of us. And I like that these services can be free. And but I think you know the whole point of Twug is not that. Although I I say the the mailing list or the forums you know are a major benefit of Twug. I would think that the most important thing is the monthly meeting. And the reason I say that is because you know with the internet the way it is now, there are hundreds of of lugs, thousands of lugs all over all over the world and you know you can go to a forum or discussion group like linuxquestions.org and just have thousands and thousands and thousands of people asking and answering questions and their blogs their how to's um, there, there are even some online blogs that meet regularly using like mumble 
I know mm-hmm. Linux Basics has an online mm-hmm. blog that meets before they record their weekly podcast. Oh yeah, I mean nowadays you could use Google Hangouts, you could use all kinds of things, but I try to encourage people or try to remind people that in the past having a meeting was was required. It was the only way you could really effectively communicate and learn. Um, that's not true anymore, but I think that's what makes Twug special is it's physical. So you're actually going to a place and meeting people and reading people's expressions and getting the vibe of the room and staying after the meeting to talk to somebody about something geeky or ask, asking for help on something specific. A virtual meeting, however much goodwill and friendliness there is in it, is still virtual and it's not quite the same as faith. It's an attempt to recreate the face-to-face experience because people need know they need the face-to-face experience, but it's not... I not the same. Maybe when we all have holographs of ourselves, uh, and we can all go to the holodeck for our love meeting, uh, it will be the same. But yeah, I, I, I agree. That's, I, I come not because of what I might learn at the meetings, because oftentimes the meetings don't address anything that's really new to me, or alternatively, it addresses something that's so foreign to what I'm interested in, I just don't care. Uh, like Matt's presentation about the Desura game right. thing. I, you know, I, I You're not did, a gamer, so that I'm doesn't not really ga- interest you. Yeah, I decided long ago I wasn't going to be a gamer because I don't have the time to get good, and I'm already mediocre at, at enough things, so I don't want to add another thing to that list. Right. Uh, I think we're, we've been going quite nicely here for quite a while. I, uh, one question, though, and I, I think a lot of HBR listeners would also be interested in this, though it's not uh, it's not about Linux, but you've recently gotten a Windows 8 computer, I understand. Yes. As uh, someone who's proficient in using both systems, because we, we were talking the other day, and you mentioned you've always kept a Windows computer on hand because there are sometimes things you have to do that require that operating system. Uh, and I I keep one on hand, too. Actually, it's quite a nice computer, except for the operating system. What's your first impression of Windows 8? Well, um, I have to say that there are some things that are really flashy and very interesting, especially... Um, I mean, I'll just preface this by saying my last home portable machine was an EEE... that was actually the EEE PC I was talking about earlier, uh, the EEE 1000. And, you know, that's several years old now, and it's time for something a little bigger. Um, I needed a higher-resolution screen, more memory, faster processor. And I've been just kind of looking to see what was available. And something caught my fancy. It was a Lenovo Twist, which is one of these new touchscreen um, ultrabooks. And it has a flippable screen where you can twist it around and put it flat and use it as a tablet or not. I'm not sure if I'll ever use that feature, but it just seemed like a nice thing to have. I compared lots of different machines. Um the Lenovo one in my mind only because it had a, a real Ethernet port it had uh, which was I was looking for um, it had a, a quality build it had enough memory there was an 8 gig of memory option where most of them were 4 and I really wanted a solid state hard drive just like I have in this EEE um, no moving parts not and more reliable and faster so I opted for that knowing of course that it was going to come with, with Windows 8 whether I wanted it or not now I'm very outspoken about that. I think that, you know, uh, 
there's nothing wrong with wanting to use MS Windows if that's what you want to use, but I think it's really wrong that it's almost impossible to buy a machine of your choice without having to pay the Microsoft tax, you know. Um, that said, you know, I've always had some machine somewhere around that has Microsoft Windows on it. A perfect example is my Sony um, DSLR camera. You know, I need to do a firmware update. Well, they don't give you any other way to do that except with a Windows program, and so I have to have some access somewhere, um, even if it means going to someone else's house, but I don't want to have to inconvenience somebody else just to, to do that. Um, otherwise, I'd say I spend all my time, you know, like my, my main computer here at home doesn't have Windows on it at all. So, uh, but I still have that, an old laptop that has that on it. Now, it's aging too. It's like Windows XP Service Pack 2 or something. So I expect at some point, those little utility programs I may occasionally run into that I need to run won't even run on that. Um, so I thought having a dual boot wouldn't hurt this in this case being forced to buy the license it could be useful um, but you know I opened the thing up and was playing with it and man they've really changed the user interface it's it's a radical departure from from Windows 7 from XP or Vista you know we, we forget that Vista exists but it really did um, I think that there are some parts of it that are extremely frustrating especially from someone that wants to just get certain tasks done like, I wanted to know, how could I repartition the drive? How can I see this? How can I do that? I can't even find There's no start menu. You have to search for things in order to find anything. Um, of course, you know, coming from... I'm used to jumping from different desktops, you know, KDE and GNOME and, and LXDE and different environments and different distros. So <clears throat> I can be frustrated pretty easily, but at the same time, I think I'm pretty flexible. I, I'm used to working with a lot of different machines. But even I was thrown for kind of a loop. Um, and that's on top of all the extreme complication because you know my first objective is to repartition the thing and get Linux on it because that's what I want to use on my on my new machine and in order to do that oh, I spent countless hours trying to understand this, this very oppressive uh, licensing scheme that Microsoft has gotten into bed with all their OEMs and forcing them to turn secure boot on and uh, they the Windows key is now stored in the BIOS it's not stored on the on the machine and, um, and you know a lot of us have known that was coming since it first got publicized about nine months or a year ago right I knew it was coming too but it was one of those things where I figured that by the time it became a problem or I needed to deal with it somebody else would have had a solution well surprise I did find out by complete accident I'm just lucky you know because I couldn't get this information from Lenovo unfortunately um, that you know you can turn off in the Lenovo you can turn off secure boot and it looks like so far, I haven't successfully installed Linux on it yet because I just got it yesterday. <laughs> so I'm still working on it. But it looks like uh, you can turn off Secure Boot and it still boots Windows. Um, but, oh my god, it's got like six partitions on it with all these weird names that I've never seen before. I don't know what they're for. That's up too from Windows 7 comes with four. Right, so at least Lenovo's version of it came with six. And uh, I'm not going to list them all now because this... But, you know, just trying to sit there and go through different forums to figure out what are these and can I get rid of it. And because it's so locked down in the BIOS with the um, EFI or e UEFI BIOS situation, you have the legacy BIOS, you have the new BIOS, you have with it locked, with it not locked, you have the bootloader and the way it's tied to it. Uh, it took me an hour just to find out where to make a system recovery disk for this thing, which was difficult. In other words... Uh, as a knowledgeable, experienced computer user of many different operating systems, it would be fair to say that you find Windows 8 to be a real pain in the anatomy. Oh, yeah. And the other thing that was shocking was, you know, was, I'm buying a... 
I knew it didn't have a lot of storage space. It's 128 gig solid state. But when you find out that it only, what was it, like 50 gigabytes are available, 50 to 60, after all the, the crap that's loaded. I mean, they've... they've, they've Holy yeah. moly! Well, they divided it up into all these little partitions, you know, and they had the recovery partition and this and that and the other. And there wasn't as much junkware on there as I expected, probably because it just didn't have space. But... Um, <laughs> You know, uh, what I would want to do typically is get rid of the partitions I don't need. You know, the traditional way of doing this, make it as small as possible, remove all the crap, make a backup of it, repartition it down real small, and then have Linux take over the rest of it and use that primarily. But uh, I, I'm just, I'm, I, if I'm frustrated and I know what I'm doing, I guess most people look at it and it's just pretty. You know, you've got your, you can use a gesture since it is a touchscreen based one. You can flip things around it. But as soon as you try to start doing anything a little more complicated than than touching something and pulling something up it, it becomes frustrating so well this this windows 7 computer i got which was was a gift from someone i did a lot of blog posts to his website for him over to generate more content for a number of years and he had one of these fall into his hands it's a gorgeous tablet touch screen the touch screen worked just fine under mint by the way uh but when you get beneath the glitz of the much wanted Aero desktop and the visual effects underneath, it doesn't look much different from Windows NT4. I want to thank you very much. I appreciate time. I've learned a lot in talking with you, and anyone who sticks with it through the course of this conversation, I think we'll learn a lot. I'll make sure that in the show notes there will be links to the 12 website and forum so if anyone's interested because the website and the forum and the mailing list are certainly not limited to any particular geographical area and thank you very much for your time well thank you i appreciate your taking the time to uh, further promote twug and and linux if you want to email me you can email me at frank at pineviewfarm.net Pineview Farm is all one word, no spaces, no punctuation. And my website is www.pineviewfarm.net. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All BinRef projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.